0: Across the city and South Cambridgeshire.
1: On FM, digital and your mobile.
2: Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic.
1: So we get better flavour because of the fen soil.
2: I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think.
3: I
4: shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs>
2: you've got this big sticky mess
4: when you start off.
2: Pizza Pot pies
4: My wife's
3: cakes are selling hot cakes. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you.
2: The time is right for this sort of thing.
3: Food
1: is everything. <laughs> <to see>.
2: Cambridge <laughs> is right for this sort of thing.
3: What's
1: it like? Can you dishes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with lots of Cambridge food and drink news and features. In the studio here in Gwydist Street are Sue Bailey and myself, Matt Bentman. Alan Order is away this week, but we have an absolutely packed programme today, so here is Sue to start us off. Packed indeed? We're beginning with a major interview with Cambridge food writer
0: Bea Wilson, who has received many plaudits for her new book, The Secret of Cooking. Bea will be talking about her new book, what led to her writing it, and about her other
3: work. This week is National Coffee Week and we'll be talking to Jake Bosworth of Coffee World, the roastery in Milton, about getting the most out of your coffee. We're also going to the new Sri Lankan restaurant, Takeaway, just opened in Balmwell Road. And we've some fish and seafood features too. New of regular seafood pop-ups in local pubs, and from fishmonger Ben Roberts, some ideas for making fish pie. Also our regular features, free food in Cambridge, food and drink news, and at the end of the program, a look at some local food and drink job vacancies. So let's begin. Let's start with B Wilson and her new book, The
0: Secret of Cooking. I met Bee earlier in the week and had a fascinating in-depth discussion with her. I started by asking how she felt now that her new book has been
2: published both in the UK and in America. Well, it's very exciting and strange in a way, because I've been a food writer for more than 20 years, but this is the first time I've written a cookbook. The thing I dreamed of doing when I was sitting at the kitchen table as a little girl was writing a cookbook. I don't think I had any inkling of what food history was at that point. So I feel I've finally kind of made my promise to myself age eight of writing a cookbook my mother had things like madame jeffrey and jane grigson and all of those classics in the house and i'd sit and read them at the kitchen table but she also had the penguin cookery book by b nelson and as a child i changed the n to a w so i clearly did wish that i could write my own cookbook and what that book is, as listeners will know, so many people seem to have grown up with that book. I mean, it was sort of before Delia Smith, and Delia is much better, actually, than goes into so much more detail than the Penguin Cookery book does in her recipes. But it was just a useful, all-purpose cookbook. And I think that was my vision of what a cookbook was. It isn't exactly what I've written, because what I've written is full of so many more discursive essays about food and life and how you combine cooking with everything else on your to-do list but I couldn't really have imagined writing the book I've written as a child because it's so much more aimed at people like me who have children of varying ages and work and emails and lots of other busy things to do and sometimes you're cooking alone and sometimes you're cooking for people and you need the cooking that makes you feel good about it whatever your situation is. So did you used to help your mother when you were younger as well? Oh I totally did yes I loved cooking with my mother and she was also, I realised, looking back, very generous in terms of just letting me loose to experiment by myself, which is what I did from an early age we used to watch the Rue Brothers on TV. And one of the first things I ever made by myself was was this potato pie, which kind of sounds really, really carby, doesn't it? But it was delicious. It was kind of really delicious puff pastry. And then you layered the potatoes really thinly and it had cream and it had herbs. And and I remember just feeling so satisfied that that actually came out right. But yeah, no, my mother, one of the first things, she made a lot of cheese souffle, which sounds very fancy, but actually it's a really cheap way to get dinner on the table because it's just a few eggs and a bit of grated cheddar and then we'd probably have that with some baked potatoes or something but I just really vividly remember the magic of separating the yolks from the whites and beating the whites with her old rotary handheld whisk which I would now never use, but I have a real nostalgic hankering for that way of whisking an egg. How did you decide to structure your current book? So the one of the first things that came to me was the title, The Secret of Cooking. Usually with all of my other books, pretty much, I'm trying to think of an exception... The title is a struggle. I go through many false starts. I go through terrible titles during the kind of draft phase and then a title will come to me later. This was the opposite. I thought of the title, The Secret of Cooking, began searching for it in libraries, thought someone must have called a book that before. They hadn't, which amazed me. They'd written like The Secret of French Cooking or The Secret of Cooking to Lose Weight or The Secret of Fast Cooking, but not just The Secret of Cooking. So I thought of the title, Thought that's a great title. I love that title, Which is also very rare, I'm usually just kind of self-doubt and thinking this is no good. And then I thought, what is the secret of cooking? I can't call it that. And then I suddenly thought of the second half of the sentence, which is the secret of cooking is the person who cooks. And I kept thinking about this, thinking about this, and thinking, this is true. I can't think of a situation where that's not true. And it kind of explains all of these things that we sometimes get almost quite angry about, like the difference between very fancy chefy professional cooking and the kind of cooking most of us are doing every day in our own kitchens, of course that's different cooking because it's completely different when someone's being paid for a living to cook. And it should be different. And both things are equally wonderful in their own way. But if you're cooking at home... You need to tailor it to yourself and you need to tailor it to your own desires and you need to be kind to yourself. I think that was the thought I kept coming back to that we're not kind enough to ourselves when we cook. I meet so many people who are constantly berating themselves slightly for saying, you know, I'm not a good enough cook or I wish I could make this. And I would do it to myself. I had a kind of vision of this amazing Otolenghi food I would make. Sometimes I do make Otolenghi food. I think he's terrific, by the way. But sometimes you don't have time and sometimes you don't have the ingredients. And that's fine. And so I wanted to write a book that could speak to these different situations in life in a way that got so many wonderful cookbooks on my shelves, but I didn't have a book I felt that was doing exactly that. Uh, your cookbook is amazingly sort of
0: generous and kind. It says, you know, don't stress, this is what you could think of doing, but you don't have to do it like this. Take a theme, take an idea,
2: and then this is how you
0: can develop it, really.
2: Yeah, that was my hope. And I it's it's very hard to know how to pitch it because I'm aware that some of the people reading it will be extremely confident cooks who know how to do all of this stuff You might be thinking you're patronizing me by telling me here is how to teach yourself how to cook with a carrot which is what one of the chapters is where I'm trying to say if you think you don't have good knife skills just practice with a carrot because then it's such a cheap accessible ingredient if it goes a bit wrong it doesn't feel like as much as A disaster as if you're experimenting for a kind of high stakes dinner party and you've bought really expensive ingredients. Yeah, I'm trying to say there's always another way of doing something. So pick the way that suits you. And what's been lovely since the book has come out is getting emails from readers and friends and response on social media of even people who have been really brilliant cooks saying, I'd actually lost my mojo a bit and I've read your book. And it's persuaded me back in the kitchen. And that is exactly the result that I would like. No, that's lovely because often cooking is a daily... It it shouldn't be a daily
0: chore, but sometimes it feels like it. It should be a daily inspiration. What are your
2: feelings about the chore side of cookery? I mean, my things I. I say in the introduction to the book that I think at its best, cooking is a game that you play with all your senses, a game where no one loses. And it's an utter delight. But that is imagining that you're cooking under ideal circumstances where maybe there could be a lovely helper handing you prepped ingredients like we see those people on Saturday morning TV with their lovely glass bowls filled with kind of ready minced garlic and ready chopped chives. And if you were there in this idealised kitchen and you weren't trying to feed children, let's say, who are picky eaters or friends or yourself who might have food intolerances or allergies of one kind or another. If you just had all of the ingredients in the world and ideal conditions and all of the time, cooking's a delight. It's fabulous and it can still be like that is what I'm trying to say but it totally can be a chore and it, it's not so much that cooking's a chore but that it's got to somehow find its way among all of the other jigsaw puzzle of things that we have to fit in our lives from caring for relatives to just getting through our own work day. What really inspired you to decide to write a cookery book now? I've actually been thinking of writing it for years and It was partly, so as I say, I've been thinking of writing a cookery book since I was a child. And then I almost, when I, but I first went into food writing, in a way it was a kind of accident because I had a first career in Cambridge as an academic. My subject was history, but it wasn't food history. It was nothing to do with food and food was my hobby on the side. And then it was kind of a practical, pragmatic thing that my ex-husband was an academic and I just thought it was, I had my first child quite young and bedtime and bath time clashed with the time that I would be at seminars if I was an Mm -hmm. academic. Whereas if I was a food writer, I'd begun doing little bits of food writing on the side. Because then I wrote a column for the New Statesman magazine for years. And I just thought, oh, well, this is just nice because I can slot it in around the baby. Whereas an academic career, people manage, but it's that much harder, particularly if your partner is also an academic because he would be out at five o'clock at the mm-hmm. seminar. Someone needed to be there. So... I kind of fell into food writing but then people I'd meet people at parties and I'd say I'm a food writer and they say well, do you do recipes or restaurants and no. I'd always say well neither actually and then they look completely blank because they think what is left if it isn't recipes or restaurants and I suppose I just finally thought no I'm going to do some recipes and it's been eye-opening I mean I've for years, absolutely. I don't need know, can't think of a word of approbation strong enough for how I feel about my favourite food writers, people like Nigella and Diana Henry and Mira Soda. They're just, they become part of your life and I adore what they do. But having now done it myself, Claudia Roden, sorry, I can't believe I didn't mention her, I have such newfound respect because I now see that to write a recipe that's even halfway going to work for as many people as possible... It's such a juggling act because you're constantly trying to second guess what someone has in their kitchen. And to have your words on a page interpreted into someone's physical actions is a very unusual kind of writing. And none of my other writing has fitted into that category. So it was a very rambling answer to why now. But the seed of it has been there for a long time. But this is the third book I've done... I have a brilliant editor called Louise Haynes at Fourth Estate and a lot of what she does is cookbooks. So I was aware that if I wanted to do a cookbook to do it now that I'm working with this great editor. And it was an absolute joy to work with her on it. How long did has it actually taken you to write it? And how many times do you have you sort of tested the recipes? It's really how long it took to write. I mean, I wrote it kind of in a frenzy during I mean, my husband left, as I discussed in the book at the end of the first lockdown, June 2020. Mm. I already had signed the book contract to write the book. So I was beginning to write it. I'd done a few months work on it at that point. I mean, I'd by the time you're writing a book proposal, the, the idea for it had been with me for several years by that point. So if I was to add together all the years, it's probably five, six years it took me to write. Actual concentrated writing and recipe testing, I would say about a year. But it was just, it was my pandemic project. It was, I was heartbroken. I was completely not expecting him to leave It seemed to happen to me totally out of the blue. And there I was with my two younger children in the house. And I kind of thought, how am I gonna do this? And then in a way it was what saved me because I had to get up and I had to cook. And I not only had to cook, but I had to cook quite elaborate things to figure out what different flavour combinations are going to work? And my two children were like a kind of focus group for me. They were just they had to taste so many versions. i was like, is this the right amount of cardamom? A bit more? A bit less? My neighbours were also great. At a later stage, when you were at kind of the social distancing was easing a little bit, and I could run down the road with a plate of this or a bowl of that, and people were very helpful. Um, but to answer your question about how many times you test a recipe it depends mm. you have to do it multiple times that is absolutely clear but certain recipes i would have an idea i'm almost everything i have in the book is adapted from somewhere else and i try to acknowledge this is where i got the idea and i've changed it a bit in such and such way but some things would come out beautifully first time and then other things you just kind of struggle and struggle and think an extra egg why is this texture wrong more lemon less lemon it's it's really curious that i didn't realise the extent to which some things for no particular reason just seem to be much harder to get right. Mm.
0: Was that mainly on the sort of baking side of things or dessert side
2: of things rather than the savouries? No. You would think so, wouldn't you? I think often actually in I think with the baking recipes They were either things that we had actually already... I mean, the very final recipe of the book is called Tasha's Never Failed Chocolate Cake, which is after my daughter, Tasha. So far, I mean, do tell me as a reader if you've tried it and it's failed, and I apologise because it does seem like a kind of hostage to fortune, calling something that. But that one, she had just been baking and baking and baking versions of that for years. So... It had already been tested so many times. So with most of the baking ones, they were either things that were kind of in our family and we'd originally got the original version from a very good baking book and had tweaked it and tweaked it. So perhaps you're right that the baking ones did take more time, but but they were already, I was already at a later stage with those, if you see what I mean. I think it was the savoury ones because I think so often the difference between something tasting absolutely delicious and just a bit boring or flat is just the right amount of either salt or lemon or olive oil or it's and it's that trickiness of like the balance of flavors yes in a savory dish that i found harder and very satisfying when i felt i'd got it right yes what is that book uh salt, um, salt fat, fat acid, acid, yes
0: yeah by sam nosrat that's, that's right. great yes. book yeah exactly you have gone from Uh, sort of writing The Hive, um, which was more sort of history of bees and honey and various things like that. And then Consider the Fork, which I love. Um, And then your other books, which have been more sort of nutrition, food, food psychology, food ethics, if you like. Why did you change from, you know, the sort of approach from the, the sort of, if you like, food history to going to a different
2: area? What, now with a cookbook, you no, no, in terms of your previous books. Oh, the previous books. My first two books, no, three books, in fact, were somewhat food history-focused. And as I've said, the, um, my original background, my professional background, was as a historian. So that made sense that I would initially take the leap. OK, my when I was teaching at Cambridge, I wasn't teaching food history, but still, I knew how to do history. I knew how to do historical research. But I think it was partly that book, Consider the fork. Uh, it's so kind of you to say you like that one. I really enjoyed writing that one. And it was food history, but it was, the idea was it was an exploration of kitchen implements from fire to ice to pots and pans. And for that book, actually, because the history goes so far back, you know, looking at things like cooking pots being made 10,000 years ago or you know, fire many, many, many thousands of years longer than that, um and pestles and things, I was having to read a lot of anthropology, Mm. which was actually a new discipline to me. And I loved reading the anthropology and archaeology. And some of that intersected with psychology. And the next book I did after that was First Bite, which was about how food habits are formed from childhood onwards and how we can change our relationship with food. So in a way, that was a stepping stone from Consider the Fork because I already had begun reading reading books on the psychology of eating for Consider the Fork. It was just a much smaller component. And to me, food, what's so wonderful about food is it's a lens through which you can examine any subject. And so First Bite, also, none of them have been exact, none of them are academic books. They're all aimed at a general reader. And each Mm. of them, I think I was writing to answer questions that I had myself. So with First Bite, I wanted to partly unravel I have three kids and I wanted to think, why do they all eat in such different ways when I have think I've fed them in the same way and offered them apparently the same food and yet my youngest was such a selective and unhappy eater for a while and then thankfully to my enormous gratitude, he's not anymore and eats almost everything except for mushrooms and <laughs> chillies, but that's fine. He's allowed not to like those. Um, so that one came out of that and then the next one, the way we eat now... And I wouldn't say it exactly is nutrition. It was just I kept just looking at our food culture and thinking this is very, very curious. There are lots of things going on in the world all at once, some of which seem to be fantastic, such as the interchange of global flavours on a scale that's never been seen before. The fact that so many British people now think that Korean kimchi is a comfort food Mm. Whereas if you said to our grandparents generation, Would you like to eat some fermented cabbage from Asia, they probably would have recoiled and there might have mm. been an edge of xenophobia to that. True. And it strikes me that there's there were these wonderful trends of people opening their hearts and mouths to different flavours. And then on the other hand, food, which was always the thing that's meant to keep us alive, is now responsible for more disease in the world than tobacco or alcohol mm. in the form of ultra-processed food. So I kind of, that but they all come out of a personal interest. And then the cookbook too, because I'm alongside writing all the things I've been cooking mm. every day, or pretty much every day, <laughs> usually multiple times Indeed. a day, exactly, <laughs> kind of all my adult life. That's so cool. it's that one's absolutely been with me too but Mm. I feel very fortunate that I get the chance to explore these different subjects through food because as you know in Mm. your you've clearly had a very varied career through (laughs) Mm. food Mm. it takes you in different directions doesn't it oh it does indeed and and I think what I find my most
0: interesting is the way you wear the research lightly and you make it very
2: accessible for the reader and makes them suddenly think Which I think is lovely. That is the aim. And that's the bit that is curiously hard to do because I find both processes fascinating, the research and the writing. But it's really in the writing that you're going to make it come alive for the reader. And it's sometimes so hard to kind of almost bury the research enough that someone can get the stories out of it. And I think that's the bit that when I sometimes feel in the writing process, say, yes, that paragraph is now clear enough. I hope. That's a good moment for me. Trials and tribulations of writing are an intriguing thing. Yeah, it is a bit like with cooking. I mean, it's experimental sometimes and sometimes it's trial and error and sometimes it comes out right first time. And because you, as you said, you do quite a lot of other writing as well.
0: And who do you typically do your writing for is it new yorker i believe
2: is that right so i have i have yeah. written for the new yorker online in the past but the only i'm completely freelance now i mean i wrote for 12 years here i wrote for sunday telegraph magazine and then i was axed and in a way it was the best thing that happened to me because it meant that i had went completely freelance and was having to pitch articles left right and center and now the only regular column i have is actually in the states for wall street journal but that's only once a month but then i write for the Guardian i write sometimes for the financial times weekend magazine sort of right for just whoever asks me at any given time i mean that's what you do as a freelancer Mm. and sometimes it's tricky to get the right balance but i do a lot for the london review of books as well not always about food sometimes about film or biography for them
3: yeah, The Secret of Cooking is available now. And thanks very much to Bee Wilson for that fascinating interview. Bee will be back on our next programme talking about some of her favourite food places in Cambridge. It was such a pleasure
0: to talk to Bee. She is such a delight in terms of personality and her real love of, of food and understanding about stresses and strains of everyday life. But still, the pleasure of food is so important to her prolific food writer as well she's is she? very much a prolific food writer no i i love her writing it's so sensitive it really is beautiful mm. yeah.
3: and like she underlined there you know it's it's to be approached by everybody it's not you know for the it's not the dyed in the wall food is no exactly yeah. no yeah.
0: it's lovely Now, details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which
3: exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, that's right. And today's Olio for Cambridge shows us that, um, well... I'd like to focus on one particular Oleo member today, and that is good old Will Run, who is based on Coleridge Road. Now, Will Run often features in our Oleo segment. I think he favours Saturday mornings. And Will Run has come up with the goods once again. He's got listen to this four cheese baguette bloomers 22 bunches of bananas iceberg lettuce naans wraps pitters, paninis battens, baguettes loaves rolls lots of mixed loose pastries like egg tarts chocolate twists almond croissants cinnamon swirls all of these to give away and you're doing a really great job regularly distributing this food will run you and the other oleo users really do deserve a bit of a salute even though that is clearly not why you do it
0: that's amazing selection there. Isn't Brilliant. It? Yeah. And another free app is around called Too Good To Go, which has unsold food from restaurants and shops, which is often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading.
3: Okay, now we're coming to the end of National Coffee Week and the start of a series of features that we have on coffee. Alan went to Coffee World in Milton, which has a large roastery that supplies a good range of coffees, as well as selling and advising on coffee-making equipment to businesses and homes. It also has a busy training program where baristas can receive basic or advanced training, and there's training for the home coffee brewer too, so you can get the most out of your coffee. And this is what Alan focused on this time, asking Jake Bosworth, the head trainer, for tips for making a really good cup at home. I'm always aware that the
5: coffee I make at home is not as nice as the coffee I buy in a, you know, in a good coffee shop. I suppose a lot of people use filter coffee or cafetières.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, is there other tips there for getting it right or better at it? Yeah, way? definitely. Um, I would say ratios are going to be key. Now, brewing methods typically a good ratio is a one to fifteen. So okay. for every gram of coffee, um, about fifteen grams of water. And this can vary slightly depending on your intensity and the um, the method you're using um but a lot of it's going to be the quality of the coffee you're using as well so i always recommend locally roasted it's fresh you know all the oils and everything are still vibrant and alive if you can get the coffee as whole beans freshly ground is going to be the best thing for you if you can't ask the roastery to grind it next step from there would be potentially getting your coffee from a supermarket but At the end of the day, it's going to be ratios and the quality of the coffee you're using.
5: If you get it ground for you, what's the best way of storing it?
4: Uh, So as long as it's in an airtight container, whether that be the bag that it comes in, um, a lot of them now are resealable, or you can just get something with a nice tight lid to sort of keep the oxygen out. Coffee, when it's ground, as long as it's stored in an airtight container... Varying on sort of what container it's in it can be anywhere from a week to sort of three four weeks um, If that was left out into the into the open air maybe Three four hours, so <sighs> It deteriorates quickly and obviously um, as it starts to deteriorate you lose that quality and that flavor So it's about trying to keep it well as nice as you can for as long as it can Yeah,
5: but if you've got more than will fit in your container Can you put it in the freezer Will that?
4: Yeah, definitely Um Typically, I try to freeze just coffee beans, um, not ground coffee. Um, only because when it comes to, to storing and defrosting it, it can go a little, little strange. But a lot of places, um, especially a lot of the higher end cafes, um, if you look towards sort of the, the cafes in London, especially, they are freezing small batches of individual portions of high quality beans, which will, they will then take out, put in a grinder, grind up, and then make the coffee with it fresh. Um, rather than allowing it to go stale and wasting some very expensive coffee. (laughs) Right, Okay. So you've got your ratio, which you just said was what, 1 to...? 1 to 15 is always a good starting point. You can drop that to about 1 to 12. Some methods are even using things like 1 to 8. If in doubt, Google it. Boiling water? You always want it slightly off the boil, Um, if you're using uh, boiling water straight after the kettle's boiled you run the risk of actually scalding the coffee Um, what you're going to do there is you're going to increase the bitterness coming out of the coffee because you're sort of scalding it from that sheer intensity of the heat so always take it off the heat for about 30 seconds as a minimum um, before you then add anything depending again on the brew method you might want to leave it a little bit longer Uh, it varies recipe to recipe right okay anything else to watch out for? Yeah, you don't have to spend high-end money to get high-end product. Just get something, do it well, uh, and enjoy it, play around with it. That's right. the...
5: And you do courses here, don't you, on, on uh, sort of non-professional as well as professional coffee making? Yeah,
4: absolutely. So I train people that have never touched um, coffee before in their life up to people that have been baristas for years and years and want to just sort of hone and develop their skills. So there is something for everyone, and it's a lot more in-depth than people think about when they actually get here. right
5: well so, looking at your whiteboard i can see there's a lot of
4: yeah and that's just that's just detail on there yeah that's just scratching the surface that one so <laughs> it, it gets so much more in depth but um i mean I, I love it it's a it's a great thing to learn about it's something that kind of catches you off guard every single day um and i, I said to you at the beginning i'm 12 years in at this point and i'm still learning every really? single day so it's
5: yeah, yeah well, the coffee you've made me is very good, so... Oh, thank you very
4: much. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I think you've made it. <laughs> no, I do try. <laughs> right, OK, just last thing very quickly. Barista art, which is always amazes me. Yeah. Um, There's a, an expert, isn't there, in, in the country on that, who's got a book out, what level?
4: Yeah, so the uh, gentleman's name is Dan Tamang. So he's now the six-time UK latte art champion. Um, he's magical when you see him work it's 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 like he's just hand drawn it it's it's absolutely incredible the way he steams the milk the way he pours everything just happens in an instant um which for you know as baristas that actually do latte art they can say that you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen sometimes you have to work really hard for it and he just makes it look effortless um he does have his own book out and i do recommend it to a lot of people it's everything you need from beginners all the way up to um he calls it his black belt baristas it's kind of like his competition designs um he's just yeah incredible what he does i I, I read that book every so often it's just (laughs) that good right
3: okay well thanks
5: thanks very much jay i know you're very welcome thank Thank you for coming
3: Yeah, that was Jake Bosworth, head trainer at Coffee World, and Jake will be back later in today's program to talk about how to choose what coffee beans will suit your tastes. He'll be back in our next program, too, talking about barista training. And by the way, Coffee World is opening a cafe on its premises soon in Cambridge Road. That's near one of the entrances to Milton Country Park. In the second half of today's programme, we'll be finding out about a new Sri Lankan restaurant
0: and takeaway that's opened in Barmwell Road and also about two local seafood pop-ups happening every week where you can get seafood of really good quality. We'll be getting some fresh ideas for fish pie too from fishmonger Ben Roberts as well as bringing you the up-to-date food news and details of local jobs and more about coffee as well. That's all coming up after the two-minute break. Stay tuned.
1: Cambridge 105 Radio On Cambridge 105 Radio filmmaker Tony Eva explains how the development of our city is now causing springs to dry up precious chalk streams to disappear and the iconic River Cam to be badly degraded. All of the water that we use in Cambridge whenever we turn on our tap comes from underground, from the chalk. That's water which would otherwise be going to nature and we've lost that. Crisis on the Cam on Radio Player and Sunday at Midday on Cambridge 105 Radio.
3: Rhythms of Southern Africa, A Musical Journey is coming to the Cambridge Junction on Saturday the 4th of November. Brought to you by Shania Promotions. It's a Southern African music extravaganza. Starring South African legend Freddie Gwala, Afro pop star Shedi Malaika, the legendary Jay's Marabini band from Zimbabwe, rising star Manain Nine, Aga Nayabinde, and Lady B. Rhythms of Southern Africa. A musical journey where music and culture unite. Tickets available at shanyai.events or at junction.co.uk. Welcome back to Flavour. And onto to our news break now for Saturday the 21st of October. And Gransden's Farmer's Market is on tomorrow with all manner of food including meat, fish, game, Thai meals, fruit and veg, drinks, lots of things actually. It runs from 9am until 1pm in Little Gransden Village Hall. Northstow Market is also happening tomorrow and is held every Sunday from 10 till 2 on the Green at Northstow. At Flourish in Hildersham on the 28th of October, Off the Beaten Truck is guesting with Gorilla Kitchen, Linton Kitchen, Pizza Mondo and Small Town Bakery. Gourmandise
0: Academy's 2024 classes are now booking on Corinne's website.
3: Namaste Village has a class called Indian Cookery Class 1. That's on the 12th of November in Castle Hill in Cambridge. It runs from 9am till 12 noon. You'll learn to make onion barges, banyan bata, takkadal, the flatbread fulka roti, and the Gujarati kaju polai rice.
0: Rennet & Rind has a monthly cheese box containing five British artisanal cheeses along with a guide, tasting notes and
3: even a scorecard. The cost is £35. Tivoli's fully enclosed winter rooftop terrace in Chesterton Road has a launch party that's on the 25th of October and it includes complimentary Prosecco and pizza from 6 till 7pm and live music from 6 till 9. Bookings are now open.
0: On 26th October, there's Halloween fun, including apple bobbing, Halloween cupcake decorating and a spooky trail. It's from 10.30 until noon, The cost is
3: £12 per child, and it's at the Three Hills in Bartlow. And Tradizioni in the Broadway on Mill Road is now open from noon until 9pm. Two courses for £19, three courses for £25. And Meadows on Mill Road begins its Autumn Supper Club this coming Thursday, 26th of October, where you can eat in or take away. The foraging chef's next outing is at Amphora in Devonshire Road
0: and it's on the 29th of October. Chef Steve Thompson will be presenting a five-course meal and there will be 10 matching wines. The cost is £115. Also on 29th October, Liz Young's The Modern Table and Sam Carter's Node Drinks are at the wine rooms in Hills Road for a five-course dinner with no and low-alcohol drinks.
3: On to some wine news now, and on the 2nd of November, there is a rare opportunity to join Emmanuel Barroso from Antinori to taste through their top Italian range of wines, including the world-famous Tignanello and Tasso. Tickets are very limited and cost £70. This is at the King's Parade branch of Cambridge Wine Merchants, and it will start at 8pm, and you can get tickets online or from their shop. There's a Barrel Top
0: tasting event at Cambridge Wine Merchants in Cherry Hinton Road on 4th of November. No booking is needed and you can also purchase a meat and cheese platter to accompany the wine. It runs from 4 till 8pm.
3: The Cambridge Winter Wine Fair is being held on the 12th of November. There'll be more than 100 wines available. You can try as many as you like. It's all included in the price. 13 local or local-ish wine merchants will be present, including Cambridge Wine Merchants, Thorn Wines, Grape Britannia, Bubbly Bandits, the Venetian Wine Bar and Gifford's Hall Vineyard. The fair is being held at the Cambridge University Press's CAS centre, which is at the far end of Shaftesbury Road off Brooklyn's Avenue. There's two sessions to this, from 12 noon until 2:30, and then from 3 till 5:30 at a cost of 35 pounds for one person or 60 pounds for two.
0: On 15th of November, Thorn Wines is running a wine tasting at Flourish from 7 till 9 p.m. They'll cover what is organic biodynamic natural and sustainable winemaking means there'll be wines to taste
3: and snacks to eat a fun and friendly night is promised and that rounds off today's news so next up is coconut coconut is an important crop in sri lanka they use grated coconut in sambals which is almost like a national dish over there in fact they use coconut in most things i found a description of sri lankan food as spice-based coconut driven sometimes searingly hot other times extremely mild. And that is because this week I got to visit a fairly new Sri Lankan restaurant on Barnwell Road and it's called Coconut. It's been open a couple of months and it's run by Niroshi and her husband Saminda. People may not necessarily know what distinguishes Sri Lankan food from Indian food, let's say.
6: Mostly my favourite ingredients, herbs-wise, curry leaves, pandan leaves, lemongrass, and condiments. I use cinnamon, garcinia,
7: Green chilli, and you use like three different variations to add different taste, And the way that you dry them affects different taste. What are the other, other the,
6: things? Uh, ginger, garlic, turmeric, and curry powder. I made my own curry powder actually using coriander, cumin, fennel for my dishes. Fennel Greek, yeah. fennel Greek also I'm using...
3: This is a very busy job for you guys because even though you open at 5.30 p.m., you're here all through the day.
6: I start my preparation at 9.30. I do all the fresh vegetables coming in the morning. Then I start prepping. Then all the dishes coming out 5 o'clock, very hot, very fresh. Mm. I enjoy. I don't feel tired.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the thing. So... The preparation of food takes long time and finding proper ingredients from London takes time and, and sometimes it's very difficult to price the items because this place, it's new and people expect cheaper prices. But luckily we found people who recognise value in food and yeah. freshness and yeah. the difference we add to them, yeah. that's a good thing.
6: I don't want to be a rich restaurant. No, I want to make people happy, to bring everyone here. Everybody can afford my food. That's my motivation, yes. I came to this country in 2015 as a chef de party, but I had a dream to start my own place.
3: What was the trigger point for you? Because you worked for several years as chef de party, yes, at Selwyn College, yes. and the students and the masters yes. were all saying you should get
6: your own place. I had to say a big thank you for Selwyn College for me to start my own restaurant because they gave me lots of freedom. I had to say thank you, uh, uh, Sally. She was a head chef before, and Matt. They gave me lots of freedom to create dishes and food demonstrations, and I had to say a big thank you for yeah. Selwyn College.
3: So, this was in Cambridgeshire Live. Siobhan Middleton wrote this. She said, Most items are coconut based and moderately spiced. They're not too strong, making them accessible to everybody. And I really liked that comment because straight away it reminded me of places which may be a little bit similar. Prana Indian restaurant the reason I pick out Prana was because I was so surprised at how beautifully mild so many of their dishes were I also had a similar experience with a Sri Lankan street food van called Kura Kura Kura, yeah now he told me you know he's never been to Sri Lanka before but he fell in love with the food and he is addicted to it it's because I am especially interested in the mild flavor that can be
7: achieved with these dishes When people think about Sri Lankan food from here, they might be thinking of something very hot and strong. And sometimes Indian food and Sri Lankan food and Bangladesh food have been sort of considered single origin probably. But Sri Lanka as an island, it has been influenced from different Western tastes, I think. And at the same time, words like chili, we call miris. Those kind of words have come from Portuguese language and Portuguese people introduced lots of different chilli variations that are mild.
6: Because I use uh, two type of chilies for my dishes, especially black pork curry is a spiciest dish in our restaurant. Especially for the pork curry we use spicy roasted flavour and the fresh chilli also. I use that spicy green chilli for the pork curry.
7: I think that Roasting adds more deep flavours, and if you use fresh ingredients, it's subtle, but at the same time, when she uses dark roast curry powder yes. to your pork dish, yeah, black, pork curry. black pork curry, once you have used a little bit of that thing, the roasted curry powder, don't let others come out, so you add them later on to keep their flavors flavors, active.
6: We always like to feed people. Before I start my restaurant, I used to give free food to Olio, I enjoy that people come and picking food and they come and say thank you. Sometimes the same people come in to collect my food, but then I categorize. Today I am giving to students, uh, today I am going to give elderly people, and today I am going to give families like that. Then everybody can enjoy I did that before I start my restaurant. Now also I start giving some days olio and some days I give my leftover food for the families, the refugees, they're coming and collecting that's a
3: really interesting point. We cover Olio every episode. Wow. I must have mentioned your name at some point yeah,
7: between yeah. 2017
6: and twenty twenty. Komala. My name is Komala. Yeah.
7: There are some families that collect food after we close because we don't keep our food for the next day because no, we can't do yes,
6: that. Yes, because of the, you know, the freshness. freshness. I don't want to give keep a fridge or freezer.
7: So always she likes to make fresh food every day, yeah. It's like homemade food, even though this is a restaurant. <laughs> we work hard not to put prices up. And we got lots of people who has not experienced yes. curries before. Yes.
6: That's the most interesting thing, because sometimes people coming here, they never had curries before Sri Lankan food. But now I had regular customers because they, they love Sri Lankan food. That's why I enjoy doing this. That's the most important thing, you know. People.
7: Yeah. So we've heard that people saying, "Sorry, we are not interested in curries," but we invited them to try our food, and then after a while, they really sort of understood the difference, and they now keep coming every day, (laughs) sometimes. And some families, yes, they have (laughs) become regular customers, and some say that they don't even cook at their homes now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that's very interesting. It's a very big motivation for us to get going.
6: Yeah, it's a hard job because we need using fresh ingredients every day. We need to do lots of preparations and lots of cuttings, choppings. But I wanted to do that way. I don't want to do the easy way.
7: Even cutting <laughs> vegetables and keeping them for a while makes a difference. So
6: if you cut aubergine today and cook today, this dish is very fresh and flavorful. Mm-hmm. If you do preparation yesterday, is not the real flavour.
3: Well, if we carry on with the menu, yeah. are you happy to pick out a couple of items? Like almost as your opportunity to speak to the listener and
7: say, well, yeah. there's a few things here that we'd really like to champion. Okay. It could be the uh, wholesome veg feast that we offer because Sri Lankan food is like um, yes. rice and curry, rice right? And curry, yes. So different curries and adding different taste and variations to the dish and nutritional balance. So, I think wholesome veg fees represent that because it has different items in a single meal made up of different vegetarian dishes. We also offer them individually, but people can try them together, and that makes a big difference. Some of them are stir fry, some of them are coconut curries. They have different textures, and having them in a single meal makes a difference, right? Yeah. And at the same time, if you want, you can add fish, chicken or pork. And we are expecting to add beef and yeah. mutton later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
6: And also we do Sri Lankan street food mm-hmm. called kothuroti. So far, this kotroti is very popular. Mm-hmm. We do vegetarian kotroti, vegan and meat.
7: It's a street food and you should be able to make it very quickly Mm -hmm. but at the same time it has like fusion quality to it. It has Chinese influences, Indian influences and it has fresh veggie items that you can taste separately. Mm -hmm.
6: healthy healthy meal with lots of vegetables, protein, carbohydrates, all inclusive. Mm -hmm.
7: And at the same time, when it is made as a street food, there might be lots of salt and additives that people put, but we always try to make it more healthy and balanced, right?
6: Yeah, yeah. that's
7: true. That's an important distinction on your menu as well, yeah. because you have your main dishes as
3: well as a fast food style yeah. dishes, yeah, the yeah. roti.
7: Yeah, roti is like that. And at the same time, if you go to Sri Lanka, you'll see lots of Chinese restaurant, but uh, sri lankan imaginations of chinese food
6: yes yeah, yeah. that's why in my way so I to represent I and celebrate
7: them we have added uh, yes. devil, devil chicken, chicken devil prawns, devil prawns and so,
6: so. these two dishes are very popular here with chicken fried rice and uh-huh. devil chicken and devil prawn this yeah. is our chinese influence and <laughs> at the
7: same time because this place was uh, chinese before <laughs> and that also sort of uh, we honor them so still we have some sort of chinese <laughs> aspect to our food asking
6: chinese food they also <laughs> have something <laughs> and
7: we also have fried rice right oh, yes, fried so rice. with fried rice and chicken fried rice and yeah, seafood the, fried rice
6: yeah. and um, the aromatic rice is a very unique uh, sri lankan dish cooked with lots of sri lankan China. herbs and spices mm-hmm. uh, is it we call the aromatic rice Yes, <laughs> I have to cook uh, three, four large rice Sorry. pots every day because aromatic rice is mm. very popular. Uh, yes. So
7: coconut has been a large part in our sweet food items that we enjoy and grated coconut as a main ingredient with uh, cinnamon. cinnamon yes. And we have developed our desserts on having some coconut item. Lots of roasted coconut, grated coconut, desiccated coconut and coconut treacle to make our desserts, yes. right? Yes.
6: It's called bibicum. Yeah. It's very popular.
7: And coconut treacle as a topping. Never heard of coconut <laughs> treacle before. Yeah. So <laughs> coconut treacle is like when the coconut flower is in its young age that they cut and take the sap out, mm. collect the sap and then you can make alcoholic drinks out of that. And then Early stage of coconut sap makes it's an early, so low-alcoholic drink like beer. You can ferment it to make it stronger. And after that, you can make a kind of treacle honey out of that. That is a very popular ingredient to make uh, sweet. And we use them in our desserts. Yeah. How do you feel today,
6: uh, about two and a half months in? Great, because we got lots of customers and we got lots of nice reviews. The, the good thing is like we
7: started this with the minimum requirements. We brought some tables from home <laughs> and we brought some pots from we home.
6: We had only one ta- two tables. <laughs> then at least now we have four tables uh, with 18 covers. And I really like people telling us the, the things, what they like, and it was feedback
3: that brought us here from Alex Rushmer of Vandal on Mill Road. Ah. He was a
7: uh, MasterChef contestant as oh, well. That's wonderful. Okay, that's wonderful. Yes, we thank him. Then the feeling that people appreciate what we do is what keeps us going. Like, yeah.
6: Yes. yeah, I wanted to say thank you for my community. They make us proud, uh, yes. proud. yes.
3: Fresh. Always fresh. That was the key point I took away with me, only adding things at the precise time to ensure maximum flavour. That was Niroshi and her husband Saminda of Coconut, the Sri Lankan fusion restaurant and takeaway on Barnwell Road. You can check out their full menu online at coconutcambridge.co.uk and they are getting plenty of praise for their food from all around the city.
0: Well, let's head back to Coffee Word in Milton now, where Alan asked Head Trainer Jake Bosworth about the different taste profiles of coffee.
5: Some coffees are described as chocolatey and some as fruity, but how do you know what you're going to get?
4: Uh, So on most packets of coffees, you will see, first and foremost, tasting notes. So that's something put together either by the farmers or the roasters that's going to tell you a little insight of what the coffee tastes like. Um, The big thing to look for, though, is going to be the roast level. As the coffee is roasted to a darker level, uh, you tend to cook off more of the natural oils. As you lose some of these natural oils, more of the chocolatey and nutty flavors start to come through. So typically, a light roasted coffee, very fruity, very bright, uh, a little bit acidic, which balances well with the fruit. As you start to move down to a darker roast, you lose some of this fruit and start to draw out, like I say, those dark chocolate, the walnut, the brown sugars. Um, If you wanna go a bit further in depth, you can look at the altitude of which the coffee's grown at. Uh, and again to keep it as simple as possible at a lower altitude the flavours that develop within the beans are quite sort of timid, quite smooth so you get your chocolate, you get your caramels you get your sugars um, as the coffee plant is growing at a higher altitude the plant itself is struggling for survival so you know it's been battered by harsh weather um, oxygen's harder to come by it's under just more extreme sort of um, an environment so the coffee tries to put more uh, more emphasis on survival so it starts to put all of this energy and time into growing the best beans possible what this results in is coffee that is packed full of like natural flavors so a higher altitude is going to give you a lot more intensity for fruit flavors acidity um, and definitely sort of a vibrant cup Mm. Uh, That's going really in-depth. At the end of the day, I always just look at tasting notes and roast level. Right, okay. And what's your favourite? My favourite is currently our Rwanda Inzovu coffee. It's a nice sort of medium to light. I just love African coffees. They're fruity, they're bright. There's something different than sort of your day-to-day chain coffee, which I don't have an issue with but it can get very <laughs> tedious when they all kind of taste the same.
5: Yeah, well also I think it is very nice to, to to sample different coffees and, and to have a bit of variety in what you drink, isn't it? You oh, do. Yeah, definitely. If you if you drink the same thing all the time, well I can only speak for myself, I stop noticing it.
4: Yeah, become uh, almost numb to it. So yeah. Yeah, The good thing about coffee and something that I always explain to people when they tell me they don't like coffee is you've probably only just tried the same thing all the time. There is a different range of flavours across board so you might tell me that you don't like coffee and the only thing you've ever drank is say like a Costa or a Starbucks I could turn around to you and say well let's try a nice light African coffee and it tastes like a almost like a fruit salad in your mouth <laughs> something completely different than what you would expect coffee yeah. to taste like yeah. and it catches a lot of people off guard um, but that's the good thing about coffee it's so versatile, There's something for everyone A bit like wine really a bit like wine just without the fun side of uh, <laughs> getting drunk
3: <laughs> Okay thanks very much Thank You're very welcome Jake runs courses at Coffee World for the Home Coffee Brewer in the Cambridgeshire Coffee Academy, including Homebrew Masterclass, Brewing Basics, and an Introduction to Coffee and Cupping. There's also barista courses, and as we said earlier, there'll be more from Jake in our next programme. And from coffee to seafood i'm talking to will
0: the fish who is an expert in seafood and an oyster shucker extraordinaire and you supply a lot of the cambridge colleges is that
1: right i do supply some of the bigger ones yes
0: well i came across you in the hoops public house in barton when you did the most amazing sort of seafood pop-up and that was on a friday not too many weeks ago the best oysters i have ever tasted in my life and they were amazing uh, those scallops of and amazing oysters this is a really good year for oysters
1: terrible year because the water has been so warm algae count is high therefore you need to go further north for the colder waters to have the best oysters
0: because often people say mercy oysters are really good but is that only at certain times of year
1: everybody wants to promote their own oysters probably the best oysters in the world have been considered for many, many years Orford Ness. They are very good oysters.
0: You were saying virtually you almost chase oysters around the coast. You're saying now, at this time of year, from Ireland.
1: Now, Northern Ireland, uh, they were in Scotland because we've had a really warm summer, and you should now follow them south. I still think my favourite oysters that I've ever tasted have come from west coast of Ireland. Equally, I've had fantastic oysters from Orford Ness. I've had them from uh, Linda's Farm.
0: And you're going to be going down to an oyster festival fairly soon to start shucking hundreds of oysters, is that right?
1: Well, probably not hundreds of oysters, because I'm no longer very good at it, but I might be able to get 600 in an hour, and I... Which oyster festival is this? Uh, in Foy.
0: Not only do you do oysters and scallops and prawns, but you're going to be opening, I gather, a fish shop in Cambridge soon do you have any details yet no
1: no because uh the place i had planned um unfortunately has fallen through so it looks like what's this space in about april now
0: you're going to be coming to the hoops pub on mondays is that right every monday
1: tuesdays in the clarendon just like a little pop-up that's uh not that's not how to um obtain the fresh food that's just how to taste whatever we happen to be catching that week
3: Yeah, you sound very enthusiastic there, Sue.
0: Well, yes, the oysters were amazing, and I've had a few more from him since. Brilliant. (laughs) And also, what's good news is from the 28th of October, he's going to be having a seafood fridge at the Larder in Burwash at Barton. Good. (laughs)
3: That's the music for news from social media. We've just got time for one piece, and that is about Cambridge Sustainable Food, which has a Food for the Planet Festival. It's on now, all the way through to the 29th of October. And today, Saturday, they're celebrating at the Museum of Technology down by Riverside until 4pm. And there'll be events throughout the week, like a cooking workshop and at the Grand Arcade, a gardening meetup at Empty Common Community Garden, and Apple Day at the Botanic Garden. And a request also, Cambridge Sustainable Food. need apples for pressing at the Museum of Technology for next Saturday. So if you have some spare, please get in contact with them via their website at (laughs) cambridgesustainablefood.org.
0: Now it's our regular slot with fishmonger Ben Roberts, who sells his fish every Saturday in Grantchester Street from 8.30 till 12.15. In these short features, Ben gives ideas for some easy-to-cook
8: fish dishes.
5: Ben, we're coming up to pie weather. What
8: about fish pie? Can you get a good fish pie? You can, yeah. Well, fish pie is it's down to the taste, really. Some people don't want smoked fish, some people don't want salmon, some people want just all white fish, some people like just smoked fish and salmon. It's Individual people want different flavours in their fish pie. For me, I would use pretty much half of the pie is white fish, and a quarter salmon and a quarter smoked, And the whitefish can be anything from cod or haddock or lig or monkfish or rockfish, anything like that, something with a bit of meatiness to it because you, the last thing you want when you just take a scoop out the pie is it's just blended into a mush and so you want the nice bits of flakes and smokefish does that stays together in flakes and so does a salmon so it, it's texture as well I think more than anything right.
5: right do you like it with anything else in I mean like for example do you like having an egg in the pie or spinach in the
8: pie or you can do yeah, or are, you had, pure, are you no, a fish I'm, purist I'm pretty much a purist uh, but I, <laughs> I do thought like, you <laughs> might be <laughs> I, 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 prawns and things like that I like to put in, <laughs> in as well but yeah I'm not, I'm not a fan of eggs in fish pies. Um I, we've my wife is a chef and we've had it with with vegetables in as well. So it does work with certain ones, spinach and uh, leeks and things like that. But yeah, eggs is it's a <laughs> too far for me. <laughs>
5: and the topping is would be mashed potato. Mashed
8: potato and sometimes with a bit of grated cheese and put under the grill just to yeah. that that.
5: Are there any fish pies that use pastry is that a thing?
8: I'm not sure. I'm sure you could, because but it's just be a little bit wet, you would have thought, for, yeah. for a G, fish pie. You
5: can have things like a salmon wellington. Yes,
8: yeah, but I think in a pie, because you've got a lot of liquid in it, uh, the base would be a bit soggy bottom. I'll yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. a soggy bottom. <laughs> we all know
5: that.
0: And Ben will be back next time talking about fish stew. <laughs>
3: Okay, so we've got just a little bit of time left. We're gonna go into our job section now. So what have we got, Sue? Well, just time for a couple of jobs,
0: Great Britannia is opening its new shop in Chesterton Road and has vacancies for part-time staff from early November. Bar service and or shop sales are roles available. To apply, send your CV to matt at greatbritannia.co.uk, plus a short under one minute video explaining why you
3: want to work for them. And finally, Daily Bread has some full-time vacancies for between 32 and 40 hours a week, deadline for applications is noon on the 5th of november details can be found on the daily bread website all of which brings us to the end of today's program you can catch flavor on alternate saturdays at 12 noon we're repeated on mondays at 6 p.m and thursdays at 2 p.m and flavor will of course be available as a podcast early next week coming up on cambridge 105
0: radio today at 1 p.m is the gadget guide with rob and lawrence but that's all from us We'll be back on the 4th of November with lots more food and drink, news, jobs and features. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye.